Welcome to Movie Oubliette, the film review podcast for movies that most people have mercifully forgotten. I'm Dan. And I'm Conrad. And in each episode, we drag a forsaken film out of the Oubliette, discuss it and judge it to decide whether it should be set free, <laughs> or whether it should be thrown back and consigned to oblivion forever. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Movie Oubliette, the cross-continental movie review podcast with me, Dan, eaten alive by mozzies by a billabong in Melbourne, Australia. And me, Conrad, without a single dangerous animal in the entire country in Cambridge, UK. (laughs) In this podcast, we discuss chiefly films of the fantastical nature, sci-fi, horror and fantasy because we all know the best companions are Ghosts, aliens, and foul-mouthed trolls. <laughs> Conrad, <laughs> how are you today? I'm very well, yes, loving the foul-mouthed trolls. <laughs> how are you? Uh, good. It's actually kind of cold today, which is um, kind of a strange feeling wearing a jumper and pants. <laughs> well, I'm glad for the pants, for sure. <laughs> You only see me from the chest up anyway, so... (laughs) Yeah, it could be anything going on down there. (laughs) So, Conrad, anything in the mailbag today? Well, we've had some lovely comments on Facebook, actually, to some of our previous episodes. Oh, yes. So, Julia Ann Young said, Thanks for sharing the Return to Oz episode. Uh, She said she also enjoyed listening to the Vanishing episode... Although she'd only seen the first movie, the original movie, so she's a purist like Travis. Ah, right, yes. Uh, I got a message from Quite Convincing. Uh, This is actually on hit record. (laughs) So none of of our (laughs) social media platforms. Um, But he said that he listened to our Phantasm episode and he said we're thoroughly entertaining, natural chemistry and a sense of fun that is super engaging. And he described us as reminiscent of Adam and Joe. Do you know who Adam and Joe are? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, they're very popular uh, film critics and comedians and podcasters and presenters here in the UK. Ah. So that is not a bad comparison at all. Great. Very pleased with that, actually. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, we're going up in the world. (laughs) (laughs) Speaking of going places, uh, what film will we be doing today? Oh, I better Go over to the movie Oubliette and find out. Ah, indeed. Just one moment. Right, let's just open up that trap door. What's happening? I'm having a vision. It's a premonition of us watching another film starring an aging, naked Kirk Douglas. <laughs> what? I can see me reaching in and selecting this movie here. Okay, that's enough of that. I'm going to close the trap door now. Oh, okay. Uh, Right. We are back. And I am brandishing a copy of Brian De Palma's The Fury, a 1978 supernatural horror starring Kirk Douglas, of course, John Cassavetes, Carrie Snodgrass, Charles Durning, Amy Irving and Andrew Stevens. Ah, right. A movie I've never heard of. What's it about? (laughs) What's it about? Well, it, as I said, it stars Kirk Douglas as Peter Sansa, whose son Robin is kidnapped by a shady government agency run by the chillingly ruthless Ben Childress, played by John Cassavetes. The agency's conducting experiments to develop the psychic abilities of hot teenagers in a bid to create the ultimate Cold War weapon. On the run from the murderous agency, Peter recruits another young psychic, Gillian, played by Amy Irving, to help him locate and rescue his son before Robin is irrevocably twisted by a heady combination of sex with Fiona Shaw, drugs and torturous reruns of a bootleg film of his father's assassination attempt. 
and it all leads to much screaming, bleeding, and explosions. <laughs> well, it starts out so innocent, but ends up so batshit crazy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it goes places. Let's just say that. <laughs> right. Okay. So this film was chosen for us by our special guest who I'm very excited to talk to because he says he's semi-obsessed with this movie and I am fascinated to find out why. (laughs) So let's take a break and go fetch him. Let's do. Welcome back and welcome to our special guest who chose today's film, a writer-director who collaborated with our previous guest, David Bruckner, on the horror anthology The Signal, directed the My Super Psycho Sweet Sixteen trilogy for MTV, and most recently, the intriguing time-travel mind-bender Synchronicity. We're very pleased to welcome Jacob Gentry. Hi, thanks for having me. Welcome aboard. Hello. So, The Fury. Dan, you hadn't seen this one before. Never heard of it. (laughs) I had seen it before because I am a Brian De Palma junkie. Jacob, tell us a little bit about your history with The Fury. When did you first see it? Why did you pick it for us to talk about today? I think I've seen it several times. I mean, many, many times. Uh, It's always sort of been an oddball uh, selection in the Brian De Palma oeuvre. I am a Brian De Palma, I, what used to be an apologist. I really love Brian De Palma. Like since high school, like I've just been obsessed with. It's it's sort of a black sheep in his filmography because it is a transitional movie for him mm. between two sort of periods of filmmaking. And it didn't get very good reviews at the time. Of course, the Pauline Kael, who is the great film critic, Pauline Kael, she, mm. she was obsessed with it. But other than that, it's sort of always been sort of shunted aside his most underrated movie mm. uh, it's remarkable how interesting of a movie it is because there's no other movie like this that he's made and there's i don't really think there's a lot of other movies like this at all it's got an incredible cast mm. but having yeah. it be the sort of follow-up to carrie it did sort of get criticized yeah it's treated as a footnote to carrie isn't it almost mm. yeah well it's i think that it's kind of like unbreakable with Shyamalan kind of thing where <laughs> carrie was such a huge hit and it was I mean, The Fury was his 10th movie, and I think Carrie was his ninth movie. So people were really discovering him with Carrie. All the fans he had from, like, Family of the Paradise and Sisters and Obsession and all that sort of stuff. But then all the new fans that came, and then they were probably expecting Carrie, too. Right, yeah. Or or Jackie Brown with Pulp Fiction or something like that. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? It's kind of one of those movies where there's probably a lot of expectation of what the audience thought they were going to get. And then they get this crazy mashup of... (laughs) Spy movie, X Men movie, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, telekinesis, mind control, uh, Jallo horror. <laughs> I found it very similar to X Men. I I actually thought this seems exactly like X Men when she goes to the school for gifted telekinesis people. <laughs> like, yeah, are they going to don some costumes next and go fight some <laughs> criminals? <laughs> yeah, because Amy Irving is basically rogue, isn't she? Let's yeah. Be very similar character. She does have a rogue quality to her, but she also, <laughs> I was catching up with Legion. You know that TV, you know, the show Legion? I know about it. I haven't seen it. Yeah. It, you know, it's a character that's sort of in the X-Men universe. And there is just so many striking similarities between Legion, at least the story they've chosen to tell for the television show and the actual, the Fury, the movie. But yeah, it definitely seems like a an issue of a X-Men side story. <laughs> I did find it very similar to Carrie as well. Just on the premise alone, like both movies are about telekinesis and, and discovering powers. And they both feature girls um, kind of coming to terms with their abilities. Um, for me, I think it was not a great choice to follow it from Carrie. Maybe he'd, if he'd done a movie in between, there would have been some kind of space Those two films seem too similar for me. Mm. I don't know. What what did you think? Well, yeah, I I agree with you. And 
I think there's a, almost a sense of directorial typecasting that if you watch the great uh, De Palma documentary that um, I'm not sure how to pronounce is Noah Noah Baumbach. Baumbach, yes. The section where he talks about the Fury, because it's just a one long interview with De Palma, and the section where he talks about the Fury lasts about two minutes. Oh. Right. And he kind of says, the studio came to me with two scripts, and this the Fury was the only one that had anything in it that I liked. Right. And his final summation is, it's not my favourite movie, but it's fine. <laughs> okay. And then we move on. <laughs> and that's pretty much all you get from De Palma about this movie. There's not a lot in there, is there? No, there isn't. No. Other than he hates car chases and he enjoyed torturing John Cassavetes by getting him to have a full body cast for the explosive <laughs> finale. Oh, and that's right. pretty much all you get from him in terms of... I mean, he enjoys mounting all of the sequences of Gillian's visions. And that is the portions of the film definitely where, for me as a, as a Brian De Palma enthusiast, where I get the most excited because all of the sequences where he visualises Gillian's experiences of psychic episodes are incredible. I mean, mm. every single one of them is a standout set piece and all of them are different. That's the mm. thing that really fascinates me, that there is a different technique used every time she has a vision. And all of them seem to have influenced a lot of things that came after. So it feels like the Fury in that respect has been more influential uh -huh. than Carrie, even though Carrie has become a cultural icon and if you mention the Fury to anyone in the street, they have no idea what you're talking about. Hmm. Okay. He uses so many different cinematic languages and, and sort of cinematic metaphors <laughs> mm. and just all, all types of grammar within that that is both sort of referential to other uh, movies in film history, but also in terms of his own just sort of invention of just ways to articulate stuff and to tell it. Like, I'm just following up what you're saying, Conrad, is that... Mm that it's it's amazing how every single set piece is different in that way but yeah i i mean what there was a interview i read where he basically had said that he was having a lot of problems getting his movies off the ground and frank yablins sort of said i have this book i think you'd be good for it and it was kind of like a go picture as they say yeah and he was just like i'm gonna do this you know and he saw a way to sort of amplify some of the things he'd already started doing with Carrie mm. and continue that conversation he's having with the filmmaking of that, you know, and explore some things maybe he didn't get a chance to do in Carrie. Mm. Mm. Uh, I haven't seen nearly enough uh, Brian De Palma movies. Was there anything in this film that was very Brian De Palma-esque, like any signature <laughs> sort of things that he normally does? <laughs> yeah, about 120 minutes of that, yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> Almost the entire movie, yeah. Oh, okay. Any, any specific examples? How about the bravura slow motion sequence? That's probably the... You, uh, Dan, do you remember the sequence where... Uh, she's escaping. She's running away, yeah. And it's the entire sequence is in slow motion. He basically slows time down to in the entire sequence. So Hester crashes into the car, Jillian's escaping, hmm. Peter, Kirk Douglas is coming to rescue her. You have agents ascending from all, all angles. You have all of these planes of action that are all happening with the with that amazing John Williams piece that's going over the top of it. Sure. And that is signature De Palma and uh -huh. one of his better sequences. He always has these sequences where he where he just slows the entire thing down and makes the sort of spectacle of the little moments and the choreography between all of these sort of suspenseful things all converging, mm. whether it's the climax of uh, Raising Cain or whether it's when Carrie is the mm -hmm. sequence leading up to when the blood falls on Carrie's head. Yeah, right. That's that's one of the most sort of, you know, elongating time. He stretches out a moment that's literally like, you know, 30 seconds into like eight minutes. And uh -huh. it's so uniquely De Palma. Other directors have done this, but it's something that he does better than anyone. And it's probably the thing that as sort of a burgeoning filmmaker, I... When I was younger, I really was focused on that. But um, there are so many hallmarks for him, including the voyeurism, mm -hmm. 
using cameras, people spying on other people. Mm. One thing, I, Conrad, uh, you can maybe check my math on this, but this may be the first, the beginning of his train obsession. <laughs> whether it's Carlito's Way or Untouchables or uh, Dressed to Kill or, you know, what have you. Mm. There's always these great sort of train, uses of trains. And he starts with a toy train. So it's like he's practicing for all the future trains, train sequences in his other movie. Like if you look at Carlito's Way, which has one of the most amazing train sequences, and then the, one of the best sort of slowed down sequences in Untouchables is, uh, takes place the in a train, train station. station. Yeah. So, yeah. Mm, yeah. Okay. Speaking of Brian De Palma's fascination with dissecting a moment, um, sometimes in slow motion, often in slow motion, from lots of different perspectives, I was wondering if this was something that particularly appealed to you, Jacob, because I read an interview with you where you referenced 10 minutes of Back to the Future 2 where a second Marty McFly is running around the periphery of and trying not to interact with the finale of Back to the Future 1 as being one of your favourite time travel movie moments. And that's something that really resonated with me because I love that as well. I even enjoyed it in Insidious 2, which I I jokingly refer to as Back to the Further. (laughs) But I was just wondering if that's something that particularly fascinates you. I'm just thinking of your movie Synchronicity, which again, is a, a time travel take on the film noir genre, but it features a character who is revisiting the same sequence of events many times, sometimes to change it, sometimes to try to put it back to the way it was. And yeah, so I was just wondering if you if you could talk about your fascination with dissecting moments, if even if you can verbalize it. <laughs> I think there's a, many reasons I love it or I'm fascinated by it and will continue to try to explore it in my own movies. It's one of the aspects of cinema that is unique to cinema. Mm. When David Fincher was talking about uh, Alfred Hitchcock, he's just like, all cinema is is just behavior over time. Mm. A director has control of the manipulation of what you're supposed to be looking at in the frame or what expression of which idea you're supposed to be paying attention to. Uh, And also suspense is right there with the expanding and contracting of time as something that's unique to cinema. And I think that the way that Brian De Palma does it in these set pieces is something that you can't get in any other medium. And it's something that you can't barely get in any other movies besides, Mm. besides his movies. There are people that do it well, of course, like Sam Peckinpah will show a death in slow motion and really sort of look at the sort of dark poetry of that. But then Brian De Palma makes an entire sort of uh, set piece that's not only expositionally like letting you understand what's going on in the scene. um, And it's a great sort of almost physics problem he's doing and a coordination of, of all the sort of techniques that, you know, going all the way back to Griffith of cinema, but it also can enhance your sort of emotional connection to the characters in the movie. And you can highlight certain moments that are, since time is relative for all people, you enhance something that had a greater import to to a character in a moment than you could have otherwise. Mm. And especially with the sequence like the sort of one we're talking about in uh, The Fury, that is just every shot is slow motion and there is no sort of, I mean, there is a little bit of sound that is sort of interweaved in there just to kind of give it texture. But ultimately most of the sound is dropped out and it gives John Williams operatic score a chance to sort of take you through and guide you through that. And there's also just on the aesthetic level as a filmmaker, those sorts of sequences with a really good piece of music is exhilarating. Mm. You know, it's, it's actually one of the most enjoyable things just to create. I'm sure just putting that music in there and watching that sort of opera take place. And it's, it's all visual and it doesn't have mm-hmm. dialogue, you know, and, and you're just sort of getting all the information visually. Yeah. It's like watching a, a silent film for sure. Yeah. I could spend the whole rest of the podcast just talking about this. <laughs> this thing. <but laughs> sure. Does that answer your question, Conrad? <laughs> it does. It does. And I was very keen to get you to talk about it because it's clearly something that resonates with you and anyone who loves that sequence in back to the future too, as much as I do gets my, 
I vote. Well, that has a really interesting connection to this because the scene in Back to the Future 2 isn't so much as slow motion because there is dialogue and stuff, Mm. but it does have Marty watching himself Mm. in a scene from a previous movie. And that's one of the most interesting aspects about it. And the Fury has these sort of sequences where De Palma is using all these different techniques, like you were saying, in different sequences to express Jillian going through a scene that Robin has already sort of been involved in, Mm -hmm. you know, something that's already happened to him in the sequence where uh, Jillian's standing in that bedroom and then Robin's on the bed as if she's walking around in a theatrical performance of that moment in his life. Yeah. Yeah. It's that sense of voyeurism, but also it's almost like come back to the future. It's, it's going back in time. Yeah. Yeah, she is time traveling. And it's interesting that when she is first asked uh, to test her psychic abilities, where the Paragon Institute does this uh, school show and tell, which I'm sure can't be ethical, Lindstrom says to Gillian that she should empty her mind and picture an empty screen in a theater and just let that screen fill her mind. I don't know whether that comes from De Palma. You always have to be careful ascribing authorial intent to a director when it came from the script and the director didn't write it and Brian De Palma did not write this movie. But it's interesting that the image of a theatre, an empty theatre screen, is what's given to Gillian as the key to accessing her psychic experiences. And of course, the first full-on vision that she actually has when she's on the stairs uh, with Charles Durning's character and she touches him and gets this Robin flashback, she's actually standing on a rotating platform in front of rear projection. So there's actually a scene from a movie playing on rear projection with Amy Irving, with her incredible wide blue eyes of hers. And she just appears to be trapped, rotating in this theatre experience, (laughs) unable to stop seeing what she's seeing. It's a fascinating form of torturous voyeurism that she can't escape from, visualised in very cinematic terms and even described in cinematic terms within the text Literally. itself. Yes, it yes. is, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I just find all of all of that stuff fascinating and I can understand why, given the option of a couple of Go pictures and, and he looks at this one, he thinks, well, this is the one I can do something with. Well, he said he, he, said he doesn't really have an interest in paranormal or ESP, but he likes... As, a, as an avenue to explore expressionism and surrealism. Mm, and right. so it just gives him an opportunity to express it that way. And I find, I find that that's sort of uh, something that I, has a, a lot in common with some filmmakers who you believe, it's like, oh, well, he must be obsessed with telekinesis because even f- after this, his next project was going to be The Demolished Man. Mm. And that never ended up happening. But it's a vehicle for wh- from which you can express the things that you're interested in. And I find that that's something that true of like science fiction for me or the horror movie for me, like, you know, time travel itself isn't something that is I'm obsessed with. It's the as a way to express an idea. Mm, Do you know mm -hmm. what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. De Palma says when you're dealing with the interior of someone's mind, you can do all kinds of stylized things. And that's a form I'm drawn to. So he is ultimately attracted to the interior of someone's mind. And if you've seen a lot of his movies, you know that psychological disorder, for the lack of a better term, and personalizing that and getting inside of that subjectively is something that he's he does throughout his entire filmography. Hmm. Yeah, and it's always cinematic. It's always visual. I don't think, and maybe you can check my math on this, I don't think De Palma has ever used voiceover as somebody's internal monologue you're right he will always find a visual means of getting inside somebody's head i mean the only time that i can think of it is in carlito's way but that's just an expression of him already have being dead do you know what i mean Mm. (laughs) and he's still expressing it visually and that's yeah just like the beginning and the end of that movie when he's just like lights closing boys (laughs) fading out now (laughs) drinks time Time to get off. <laughs> Let's be honest, the film is a bit of a mess. 
It's hard to categorize. It's very difficult to categorize. It's kind yes. of a post-Watergate government conspiracy thriller with a bit of carry thrown in and multiple protagonists. So you have Kirk Douglas, 61 years old, in his I'm still virile phase. We've seen this man fighting Harvey Keitel naked in this sort of phase in his life. Oh, you did Siren 3? Yes. <laughs> yeah, we didn't. We did not enjoy it. Check out that episode. Um, well, just like what you're talking about Siren 3, I'm sure you guys talked about this, but he had like in his contract to like have a naked scene. Yes. <laughs> like he just wanted to show his body off. Right. <laughs> that had to be true in this movie as well, because he is naked. <laughs> he... Does an entire sequence where he's in his boxers doing parkour <laughs> sure. and jumping off yeah. rooftops. Yeah. And his entire there's an entire like ten minute section of the movie he he's not wearing a shirt or pants. Yeah, but I also feel like maybe Brian De Palma was making fun of him for that because there's a scene after he's kidnapped those two police officers where his trousers just fall down. <laughs> yeah, and he looks at and there's like this weird gay panic thing where he like looks at them <laughs> yeah. and Dennis Fran's like, what are you going to do to us? And he's like, he just looks down and up, which is such a weird moment. But yeah, I think Brian De Palma was, I think he was having such a good time with just sort of expressing himself in other ways that he just, all the things he didn't care about, like car chases or Ferris wheel sequences or Kirk Douglas or any of these kind of things, he, he was making a sardonic joke about it there's so many mm, things sure. that are just like i think he's making fun of that <laughs> mm, agreed like i think that's a good read i think he was making fun of kirk douglas the entire movie <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so you have kirk douglas as the government agent man trying to get his son back you have amy irving as jillian the young girl who's trying to come to terms with embarrassing public bleeding events and burgeoning supernatural powers. And you have Robin, Kirk Douglas's son, who disappears for an hour and 15 minutes, but remains this MacGuffin, this very imposing figure, because everybody's talking about him and all mm. plot strands are leading towards him. Um, so multiple protagonists... And then tonally, you've got really weird shifts as well, because a lot of this film is funny and it's intentionally funny. There are huge chunks of genuine humour in here, like Kirk Douglas uh, holding up a family when he's trying to escape a neighbourhood that Childress has got under surveillance and uh, <laughs> befriends this old lady who quite happily ties up her adult children <laughs> and tells Peter that he should just kill all the feds. <laughs> Yeah, really odd moments of humour in here, in amongst operatic, sturm and drang, people exploding kind of yeah. <laughs> melodramatics. I mean, it's odd. The body count is fairly high in this film as well. Yes. It was such a mix because it had the espionage, fugitive aspect of it, which people can enjoy. But then you throw in telekinesis halfway through the film, which completely changes the feel of the movie but there's not enough telekinesis for it to be a very supernatural sort of science fiction i guess film so i did find it quite divisive like it was hard to really settle in and also with the humor that you mentioned really took you out of how intense some of the other scenes were especially i i found there was one scene that was especially funny um, with the top guy one and top guy two um, like seek <laughs> <Yeah>. undercover agents <laughs> trying to barter um, provisions, uh, a lukewarm coffee over a Hershey's chocolate bar. Um, and then another secret agent just interrupts and says, asshole one, asshole two, stop clogging up the frequency. It was just a hysterically funny scene. That sequence, what's interesting is it's, I, I sort of think of it as like a Robert Altman by way of De Palma sequence uh -huh. because it has this sort of natural... Uh, just sort of finding different people, speaking uh, a bunch of different people within a scene. But it's shot with a very voyeuristic zoom all in one shot, the entire sequence, mm, mm. going all the way to the guy in the car Yeah, uh, on the walkie-talkie saying, asshole one, asshole two, right? <laughs> you got a guy on the yes. top of a building. You got So you have this almost, he's almost like he's 
making us it's a satire of the conversation yeah the francis for coppola film yeah, yeah yeah sure sure i think this whole movie is a satire on paranoia conspiracy thrillers of the 70s because mm. uh-huh. that's okay. one genre that i'm obsessed with and this movie has all of the hallmarks of it mm. but with the most surreal dark humor and absurdism going on in between mm. and mm. But going back to the disjointed nature of it, the first thing I would say is that it's never boring. No, no. not at all. <laughs> so you have, it has that going for it. It's, it's so confrontational and provocative in that way because I don't know what scene is going to happen next. Even having seen the movie like 20 times, I still forget what happens next in mm. the scenes. And I'm always surprised. And it's, it's sort of pulling you along. But on a sort of more uh, textural level, it's almost like he's creating a sort of fugue, you know, in the same way that like Michael Mann tried to do with Heat. We have three different sort of movies for the first half of it that sort of all become the same movie by the end. Right. It's like yeah, these three sure. movies like meeting. Converging, yes. And John Williams' score exemplifies this point. Mm. His score brings in three different types of score. You have the Bernard Herrmann brutal, stabby dissonance. And you have the sort of jovial, bouncy <laughs> aspects. And then you have his sort of like deep breaths, undertones. You have the theremin and you have these mm. sort of horror. I mean, so in the escape sequence, you have this perfect sort of six minutes of all the different. It's almost like a suite of the music. Mm. It, it's like exciting and happy and exuberant going through all the different forms of the score till you end up at. Uh, almost just a sort of dun, dun, these striking brutal bass undertones just slapping you down and it's and it's horrifying uh-huh. if you think of like the one of those elaborate set pieces that De Palma does where you have these different you know sort of forces converging you have three different people coming to you know you have the FBI people you have you have Kirk Douglas you have Amy Irving you have Carrie Snodgrass mm. and the music is kind of doing that as well maybe and I'm, maybe this is me being too charitable to this, but maybe the movie is doing that as well. Uh-huh. The form of the structure wow. is such that you're going like paranoid conspiracy thriller, political satire, jello horror, <laughs> you know, like uh-huh. super gory horror movie. And you also have a, a psychic phenomena movie. And, and, but they're all, they're all under the auspice of the sort of mid to late seventies heightened popularity for religious paranoia whether it's like the omen or patrick or escape to witch mountain or what have you this was a very popular kind of thing and then you also have conspiracy thrillers which were also and it's just kind of like a mashup of that at the time Mm. but then de palma has to bring in some kind of interesting thing like mk ultra almost (laughs) it's like we're almost kind of diving inside of the the MK Ultra program that the CIA, you know, and, and mind control and what that does to people. And then what that says about the dehumanization of those people within that system. And then the ending, of course, being the ultimate rebellion against that corrupt system where she blows it up. So I don't know. That may just be me being reading too much into it or being too generous. But I do think that because of John Williams' score, those things converging is intentional. And whether it works or not, that's another story. Whether it's satisfying <laughs> to the audience is another story, but at least it's never boring. Wow, I am, my mind is blown right now. That, that's really <laughs> insightful. <laughs> How lucky is Brian De Palma to get John Williams when he's just won an Academy Award for Star Wars. He's just done Close Encounters of the Third Kind. He's about to go off and do Superman with the London Symphony Orchestra. And in between those, Brian De Palma runs into his office and says, hey, I've got this film called The Fury and Steven Spielberg's girlfriend is in it and Bernard Herrmann's no longer with us. Would you like to score this movie? And John Williams said... It would be my pleasure. Hmm. How lucky is Brian De Palma? (laughs) He says on that documentary that is his favourite score of all of his films. Oh, right. And I can see why. It really is 
an incredible piece of work and not one that even among all of the glittering stars in John Williams' filmography, it's not one that many people are aware of. Mm, mm. But it is an incredible piece of work. I think it's one of his best. It was quite reminiscent of Star Wars to me. I, I just expected someone to just pop out in the Darth Vader costume or something. <laughs> like it has has a lot of uh, so, like similar instrumentation that he used in Star Wars. Like, you know, the, the horns, uh, he used like clarinet and woodwind quite a bit. Um, Th- those are John William Tells though, aren't they? Yeah, I guess so, yes. As soon as they those woodwinds come out, you think, oh, hello, John. Yeah, yeah. for sure, for sure. But it's also kind of fortunate because it, it's just like John Williams sort of doing Bernard Herrmann, mm. but through the lens of John Williams, in the same way that De Palma was doing Hitchcock, but in his own way. Mm, you know sure. what I mean? Mm. It's like saying that he's copying it, but it's very John Williams. Yeah, you know? it is. But it, but it definitely has the whole. It has definitely has a lot of influence from Bernard Herrmann, and I think that that was De Palma's insistence. So he actually really wanted to use. Bernard Herrmann, but obviously he couldn't. Uh, mm. He was unavailable. Yes, <laughs> yep. Bernard Herrmann's not dead. He's just unavailable, right? <laughs> uh, but but as, as amazing as John Williams is and as amazing as some of his scores are, it is hard to just sort of like hum the difference between Raiders Lost Ark and Superman. You know what I mean? It's like, it's difficult to go, okay, so Imperial March is this, you know. It, he's incredible. And those scores will go forever, but just in the same way as Danny Elfman, who is also incredible, there are some very, very strong similarities in motif. Whereas this one is like an amazing John Williams score that sounds like John Williams, but it doesn't sound like any of other scores to me, at least in the main themes and stuff. Mm. Plus he's using a theremin, yeah. <laughs> which is incredible because I love theremin, mm. but it's also a storytelling device in the sense that he's almost using it as like a sound effect. Meaning, like, the theremin comes in specifically when there is when they're communicating telepathically, or when something <laughs> somebody's about to get the head blown off. That's when the theremin comes in, right? When someone's about to use their mind grapes to fuck with somebody else, theremin. <laughs> yeah, the, the most melodramatic sequence is almost like a soprano going full tilt as well. <laughs> There's a huge amount of vibrato on that thing and it's just switching between two notes in sort of mm. orgasm of psychic unleashing. <laughs> it's Yeah, it's an incredible instrumental voice in the score. Mm, for sure. And not something that Williams does. But what's great about it is he kind of adds melody to something that Bernard Herrmann would do, right? So Bernard Herrmann would have these sort of striking, heavy, mm. brassy notes that jank, jank, jank. And it's, <laughs> you can't just throw a, you, it's like you don't throw Psycho on to like just chill out to, right? I mean, maybe you <laughs> no. could throw on like North by Northwest, but like John Williams sort of does that same sort of technique where he's sort of at the beginning of the measure will just sort of hit you with the most powerful note. But then he'll sort of bridge those sort of more dissonant parts with a melody and a harmony that's sort of more emotional and it gets you closer inside to the sort of emotional storytelling of the characters. Mm. I think as well with, with the score, it's, it's not so, here's a theme and you're going to remember it forever. It does have a, a motif that repeats and I could, I could sing it right now, but <laughs> it's a lot smaller and more sort of contained rather than this big, 16 bar theme that goes on forever and it kind of seeps under your skin like it's so subtle that you kind of realize that you know it already even though you didn't realize that <laughs> kind of right yeah it's kind of like how the film does kind of seep under your skin thematically mm. as well that it's like trills is cut to the clip I do have something that's really interesting and I hesitate to even bring it up because I don't necessarily like psychoanalyzing a filmmaker, but he has sort of expressed these ideas in interviews and, and is open about it. You know, there's this quote, he says, the type of manipulations that occur in familial situations in the movie are the same kind he experienced in the early years of his life Okay, by various family members. Oh, wow. I mean, I, I, if you've seen the De Palma documentary, you know, he has a really interesting sort of 
upbringing in terms of his brothers, one or one of his brothers specifically being like a hyper intelligent genius who is a paranoid conspiracy nut, you know, in the same way that like Bobby Fischer in his later years just became a complete conspiracy theorist mm. about Zion, you know, and extremely anti-Semitic and just, you know, it's just this, it, it come it goes with the sort of obsessive compulsive obsessive nature of genius, you know? Mm-hmm. And I do think that he has a very manipulative family where he was constantly feeling like he was trying to play um, peacemaker. He's trying to play peacemaker in his family and in the same way, this movie deals with that in terms of the family. Mm. You know, one's parents are just sending them off to a school. Mm. And the other person, their parents are killing people to try to find them. And then you have these sort of people trying to become father figures, like Charles Durning's character and John Cassavetti's character. Mm. And even with the relationship with, like, Kirk Douglas and Carrie Snodgrass, where he, he was using her to get to his son, but he realizes once she dies that he actually cares about her, right? Yeah. In the same way, there's this sort of relationship between John Cassavetes, because John Cassavetes is such a compelling actor. He always finds a really unique way of doing something that could be just cliched and something you've seen a thousand times. It's like mm. he is this father figure to Robin. He's a father figure to Jillian, but it has this sort of strange Oedipal aspect to it too. So there is a lot of this sort of family manipulation going on, even to the extent that Robin is engaged in a sexual relationship with someone who is a mother figure to him. And his mother is very notably absent from the movie. So I do think that there is a lot of, Mm. a lot of things as far as family manipulation and the things that we do to each other, even though we love each other, and the confusing nature of of exploiting someone who is also someone you care about. And I do, I do think that those are something that maybe is a way to find a through line through a lot of this stuff that seems messier. Sure. Yeah. I mean, most of the uh, thematic uh, discussions that I've seen about the movie focus very much on, th- they sort of find parallels between the burgeoning growth of a psychic ability with the um, burgeoning sexuality. And they take that from Carrie, that the moment that she has her period, all of a sudden she's able to make objects move around the room. And here it takes it to an even greater level with Amy Irving's character, who's not only having embarrassing public bleeding moments, but they're ones that she's actually projecting onto other people rather than herself for a change. And that she's able to even take it to the extent where she's able to just literally make the father figure explode from her own rage, which I've spoken to a lot of women that actually find that scene really cathartic. They love seeing a woman just stare at a man and make him explode because (laughs) they hate him so much. (laughs) There's a lot of post-Vietnam counterculture rebelling against the man, you know, corrupt systems. Mm. Yes. You know, the youth feeling oppressed by these systems that control are trying to control them, whether it's the CIA with MK Ultra, or whether it's just their parents not understanding their choice. Yeah. Mm. And I think that's what links the two genres together. It's that it's you're taking the carry thing, which was deeply personal and therefore probably more satisfying as a film because it's much more focused on the human drama of that one character and her family situation. Whereas here you have two different characters that you're focusing on. I think if you have... Uh, the family transposed as, you know, all these corrupt, manipulative father and mother figures, and then you have the corrupt government as well. It's sort of just taking the the micro and and putting it on a macro canvas, maybe. But Mm -hmm. yeah, that's just an attempt to try to (laughs) summarize it all in some satisfying way that probably doesn't bear any scrutiny. I think that's super fascinating. No, I I like that take. I think that's a really good way of looking at it. Mm. It's a much simpler way than my rambling (laughs) <laughs> I, I think both of them are equally insightful. I never really thought about it. But yeah, there there is that sense of control between the younger characters and the older characters and the sense of almost, I would say almost like female empowerment, but there's also Robin's character, but he just goes nuts and kills everyone. So Yeah, um, that's, that's toxic masculinity for you. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> but he's being manipulated and controlled by a female character. That's true. And that's that's one of the most interesting things about this movie is there's a lot of things on the surface of it that feel maybe sort of icky and gross uh, or even just wrong side of history. Hmm. Something like the 
his perceived Islamophobia <laughs> or, you know, <laughs> yeah, uh, sure. you know, his racism against Middle Easterners, which if you really break it down, he believed his father was killed by Middle Eastern terrorists. So therefore he's mm. just going to cause these Arabic gentlemen to <laughs> be thrown on a Ferris wheel into a restaurant. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> and that's sort of the surface reading of it. But if you look at the scene, he's actually, it's coming right off the moment where he just feels a juvenile petulant jealousy mm. about mm. Fiona Lewis's character and how she's talking to these other guys. Yeah. So he uses his powers and manifests them in this way. And that's, he's doing it because he's like, I don't want to be around other people and you at the same time. I get jealous, basically. Mm, mm, yeah, the mm. interesting thing about the whole Middle East thing is that I, I do love the opening title where it's it's telling you where you are and what the year is, and it just says Mid-East. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, don't know which country, over there somewhere. I can imagine it was a tough time to, to be specific because they shot it in Israel, and I think that's around the time of the uprising in Iran, mm. right? It's probably like the uh, remake of Red Dawn, where they're just like, it's just an abstract country somewhere <laughs> in the East that's attacking us. <laughs> Durka Durkistan. Yeah. Coming to you live from the Movie Oubliette Theatre, it's the prestigious Moobly Awards. Yes, it's that time in the podcast where we nominate some of our favourite parts of the film in a bunch of completely spurious categories. As always, we kick off with favourite quote, and seeing as we have a guest today, we will start with him. Jacob, do you have a favourite quote in The Fury? Okay, I didn't know I was going to go first. (laughs) So my favourite quote in the movie, Kirk Douglas says to Dennis Franz, when you see Childress, ask if all this is worth his arm. And Dennis Fryan says, what happened to his arm, Peter? And Kirk goes, I killed it with a machine gun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I, I would like this explained to me. So when I heard that quote, I laughed hysterically. It was hilarious because I, I just thought, how is that How is that possible? But then <laughs> the children's character comes on screen and says, see this arm, he killed it. And I was like... <laughs> Is this something that's a natural possibility for for an arm to be killed, but to still have it and for it to be useless? Like, is that is that possible? Maybe it's a, like an inside joke between them from their old days in the CIA, and that's what he's telling. You know, so tell him I said the duck flies west on on the fire night. You know, it's like code. It's like I'm coming to get you. It's like sure, sure. It's like Rambo squeezing the mic. Murdoch, I'm coming to get you. <laughs> Um, my favorite one is much more <laughs> childish. Uh, first of all, I love the scene. It's the the high school scene, and I just love the fact that Daryl Hannah is is there in one of her first screen appearances, and she's plays this character that's really awkward and knocks things over. And uh, Cheryl, who is the bully, the school bully, says, "Good Lord, Pam, if you're that nervous, why don't you just masturbate?" <laughs> <laughs> That is such a good line. Hair and costume. Do we have a favorite sartorial 70s moment in this movie? I love the jogger, the agent outfit he has, the jumpsuit that he wears. (laughs) Because it's not only a great jumpsuit that I can imagine Mm. the Beastie Boys wearing in 1992. (laughs) Sure. It's a a magnificent green and cream jumpsuit. (laughs) But it's also a great storytelling device because there's a scene where when Charles Durning is first explaining to Gillian, uh, Amy Irving's character, and there's that sort of long telephoto shot that's bringing him down this hill in the park, you can see that guy in the background stretching. Mm. And the second time you watch the movie, you can see that, oh, they're being followed by Cassavetti's people. Mm. But it's not really made a point of, he's just wandering around in the background. So then when he shows up, it's like you subconsciously knew where he came from. So there's that. I love that jog outfit for both just aesthetic reasons and storytelling reasons. Mm. And Conrad, your favorite? Uh, for me, it has to be uh, Dr. Ellie Lindstrom's incredible poofy sleeved blouse collection. All of it clearly lovely synthetic 70s materials. You know, she's a fire hazard wherever she goes, that woman. <laughs> 
uh, yeah, she has some some great things, even ones with like big Elizabethan ruffs of a collar, so poofy sleeves and big ruffs. She's sauntering around the Paragon Institute looking like that. I think it's great. <laughs> with feathered hair. With feathered hair, of course, yeah. Yes. <laughs> no, that's a fantastic... That was my second choice, for sure. Favourite scene. Do we have a favourite scene in this movie? Jacob, why don't you go first on this one? Well, since I'm going first, I'm going to say the escape sequence. When Gillian's escaping the Paragon Institute, it's a Hallmark De Palma scene, cut type of sequence, all slow-mo. We talked about it extensively, and it's also... You know, I mean, it, it has to rank in the top 10, top five of, of the ones of those that he's done. It's just classic. And the, and the score, it's got all the hallmarks of John Williams while also seeing the different phases he could go in with that sequence. So yeah. in lieu of talking about probably the best actual sequence, that's the most sort of exciting, memeable sequence. That's the sort of serious answer that I think it's like, okay, so this is what's legitimately good about this movie, you know? Mm. I really loved what the, I think it was the second premonition scene, the one we've talked about before with uh, where she goes downstairs and she switches on the light and there's that match cut. Mm. It's just a really well choreographed scene that's done practically. Yeah. I was going to go for another one of uh, Gillian's visions, which is the one that she has where she psychically connects to Robin while he's undergoing one of his cruel experiments and being forced to watch his father's death. Just the way that he he is experiencing it, but we don't see him every time we do a reverse cut on the protagonist. It's Gillian yet again wide-eyed and forced to watch. And it builds to such a crescendo that you completely forget that Dr. Lindstrom is even there. So when you get that amazing shot of Robin becoming aware of Gillian and being reflected in the glass on the table in front of Gillian, uh, mm. and then you cut back and see what's actually happening in the present, and Dr. Lindstrom is just spewing blood from every orifice, <laughs> and it's 70s red, red, red blood. It mm. is so shocking. That's just one of those great moments of cinema that just makes the hair stand up on the back of my neck. I, I love it. I think it's amazing. Mm. I agree a 100,000%. Is there a horror cliche in this movie? I mean... Are we going to call it a horror film first, I think, is the first question. Or is there another genre that we, sh we should be looking for? Sci-fi horror. Yeah, I think it is, isn't it? I would actually say thriller as well. So, mm. <laughs> uh, In terms of thriller cliches, uh, just the use of phone booths. Um, but I guess that's the only way they could communicate <laughs> when they're on the run. Jacob, how about you? What was your standout cliche in this movie? It's kind of a trope, but I guess it's so done and it's so kind of like obvious. And I don't know where we were with it in 1978. All sci-fi horror movies, etc., good majority of them have the scene where uh -huh. some professor or expert or somebody does something in a lecture hall or a classroom so they can kind of explain the conceits <laughs> oh, and the exposition yes. of the of the concept, you know? I mean, even Raiders of the Lost Ark mm. does it. I mean, there's two scenes back to back in Raiders of the Lost Ark. But, you know, it's like every horror movie, It's especially when it deals with the supernatural, they always have the, the person at the lecture hall, at the podium. You mm. got 12 Monkeys, you got Madeline Stowe doing it. I mean, the list goes on. Mm. And it, once you start noticing it, it's like in every movie. You know, it's like they'll just <laughs> write out on the chalkboard like what the theme of the movie is, you know what I mean? So... <laughs> That's very yeah. true. That's very, very true. true. Um, so for me, it was psychics with glowing eyes. Um, <laughs> oh, <laughs> yes. Yes. There's even a scene where there's a passing of the glowing eye torch from Robin <laughs> to Gillian at the end of the movie. That's the fury, man. <laughs> yeah. And boy, does she use it. So, yeah. And apparently this is quite an old trope because Homer describes Athena as having fire that flashed from her eyes. So it's a cliche that's over 3000 years old. There Ooh. we go. <laughs> Incredible. <laughs> Do we have a favourite effect in this movie? Is it John Cassavetes exploding <laughs> violently? I mean, it kind of goes without saying, doesn't it? I mean, um, <laughs> I mean, I guess like eight eight cameras 
150 frames a second, 1500 frames a second, 800 frames a second. The first take didn't work. So when he exploded, <laughs> it didn't work right. It didn't actually come towards the camera or any of the eight cameras. So it was just like, all right, see you next week for take two. So it's like a week in between takes. <laughs> to pick pieces of John Cassavetes off the wall. <laughs> you got three different effects masters working on this sequence. You have William Tuttle, you have Rick Baker, the mm. famous Rick Baker. You have Academy Award winner. I mean, Academy Award winner Rick Baker, Academy Award winner Dick Smith working on it. You know, you also have some good old fashioned trickery in the sense that when you hear De Palma talk about it, the thing he gets most excited about is that John Cassavetes knocks a lamp over right before he mm. blows up. And that's where he does the cut between <laughs> yeah. John Cassavetes and the dummy. And De Palma loves the sort of old school trickery of, you know, the illusion, the smoke and mirrors of just like the audience is staring at that lamp falling down and, <laughs> mm-hmm. and sparking out. And they don't notice that there's a jump to John Cassavetes becoming the dummy. And then it's also got Van Damage too, right? It's really interesting because it's it's something you've seen done a million times with buildings or cars where you have like 18 different angles of it and you replay it over and over from like eight different angles. Yeah. But this has a person. <laughs> and I think that that is how De Palma makes it his own in this sequence. I particularly love that among the eight cameras, there's one that's directly above the dummy so that as John Cassavetti's head goes sailing up into the air, it does a flyby on the, the overhead yeah. camera and comes back again. If you want to know the attitude of this movie, John Cassavetti's exploding head is the last shot of this movie. It's the last thing you see before we cut to black and credits. So yeah. <laughs> I think it expresses the attitude of the movie. So if you ever think this movie's taking itself too seriously, just look at the last frame of the movie. <laughs> sure, sure. Okay, our final category is funniest scene, intentionally or otherwise. For me, it's sadly, it's Kirk Douglas's death. Which, for a high fall death... Oh, good choice. ...does not seem high enough to... I mean, it's so badly staged and performed and edited, and it doesn't seem like it's high enough, really, for him to do more than tear a ligament, to be honest. Hmm. Um, lots of people talk about the fact that a character who's previously demonstrated levitation should not really die from a high fall death either. <laughs> so how Robin dies, I'm not sure. He's a bit woozy, maybe that's why. But yeah, Kirk Douglas's death just struck me as funny because it's even interrupted. So his son dies, <laughs> then there's the passing of the glowing eye torch... And then Kirk Douglas decides in a fit of passion to kill himself. So the pace is wrong. The motivation's not there. It's badly shot. And then he just yeah. goes flat like a pancake on the yeah. patio. No, he goes, he goes. <laughs> it's like, it's so maudlin and like, I don't know, vaudeville. It's just, I, you're right. That might be the funniest scene in the movie. Because at the end of it, Katsavidi goes, Get them out of my sight. I'm done with this quote. All right. <laughs> On to the next thing. Well, apparently that's because there was an extra shot that is missing from the final cut of the movie where even in his last dying breath, Kirk Douglas is flipping Cassavetes the bird, which they cut out because they thought it was tonally inconsistent with the rest of the movie. <laughs> I thought, what? no, it would have been perfect. You should have left it in. <laughs> Okay, and that's our Mubli Awards. Yeah. <laughs> okay, we are back for the final verdict. Should the Fury be thrown off a not very high roof into the oubliette to be <laughs> forgotten forever? Or should it be set free to run off with its uh, telekinetic buddies, be appreciated by the world? Uh, Jacob, our guest today, what was your verdict for the film? I think my verdict is obvious if you've listened to me go on and on about oh, this movie. Yes. <laughs> I think we need this movie. This is an important movie to have. I think it's a fantastic if nothing else, cultural artifact. Mm. I think it's underrated in Brian De Palma's filmography. And I think it's a movie that has a lot to offer, even if you don't like the sum of the parts. Mm. There's enough mm. amazing sequences in this movie just to warrant it being saved alone. So please, I'm begging you guys, just don't, 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 don't get rid of it. <laughs> Keep it. I need it. I need it, guys. If nothing else, we need John Williams' score. 
to stay around. Mm. I, I'll, I'll plead with you this way. You can't possibly throw John Cassavetti's blowing up from eight camera <laughs> angles and John Williams' score and Brian De Palma's psychic sequences into the oubliette. We need them mm. as a culture. Mm. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> you could throw all the like really stuff that doesn't age well. Throw that straight in the dungeon. We'll get rid of that. Yeah. We'll do our own cut of it. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And Dan, I have a sense that you're coming at this from a different angle. How how do you feel about the film? Well, or has your feeling changed during this discussion? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I think when I watched that, I felt there were there were things lacking production wise some of the blocking was a bit shoddy um there was some very obvious foley and adr work but after talking with jacob i feel like he's he's totally sold me on this film and and <laughs> he's pointed out a lot of things that i didn't notice about the whole surveillance voyeurism um theme of the film i lo- i love the score it really pushes the film it's subtle but also an integral part of the movie there's enough there and i think thematically and when you really sit down and analyze everything it, there's a lot going on and there's a lot of stuff that brian de palma has pumped into this movie to to talk about and to reflect over so i think that in itself is enough to save this film and yeah i agree with jacob <laughs> set it free <laughs> Okay, so my verdict is kind of immaterial now because it's two against one. <laughs> but oh. Conrad, um, no, Conrad, no, <laughs> fellow De Palmaite. I, yeah, I, I am a De Palmaite. See, I was someone who watched Carrie, not having read the book and having no idea what was going to happen. So I thought I was watching some gentle high school drama. And then she closed the doors and killed all those bastards, and I was over the moon. <laughs> it was a, it was an, an, a cathartic orgy for me, having had a, a rough time at high school myself. So w- this movie, I think, tops that. I think uh, Amy Irving's final scene, where she manages to make a man explode, is just is it's just an in- incredible moment that one ups the final sequence in Carrie. But sure. aside from that, although it is uneven, it doesn't know what genre it is. It doesn't know which protagonist it's following in it. It doesn't really know what story it's trying to tell. It's still so thrilling in the sequences where Brian De Palma is really having fun. As you said, Jacob, inventing a different language for every single sequence that still stands up today as as fiercely mm. original as it always was. I think if you're serious about cinema, I think you do have to see it. Yes. Uh, so I would echo your sentiments and say, yes, this has got to go out of the oubliette and be free. Ah, be free. <laughs> you're really good at that, like, Top Chef. I've seen, like, the little snippets <laughs> of those cooking shows where they go, your cake was so horribly <laughs> wonderful. <laughs> I was like... He's kind of put it in the dungeon. Yeah. It's one of those, like, I didn't like this movie. I loved it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I don't think it is top shelf De Palma, but it is miles away from bottom shelf De Palma. And Mm -hmm. even lukewarm De Palma is streets ahead of a hell of a lot that you will come across. Yeah. Agreed. That's great. Let's set it free. So, with the fury out of the way, I guess now the only question is, what film will we be looking at next week? Dan, over to you. Oh, well, uh, I thought it's about time we do another double blind special. This time with a 1982 horror film. Extra. Oh, British. Yeah, British. uh, Directed by Harry Bromley Davenport. Uh, and a <laughs> film that I've never seen, and uh, I think it, it does feature alien invasions. Yeah, I haven't seen it either, so this is going to be fun. <laughs> <laughs> Am I going to be proud to wave the flag at the end of this? Well, we will see. <laughs> we will see. I will look forward to that. Uh, so I'd like to thank Jacob for joining us. I'm sure everyone has enjoyed hearing your thoughts on this movie, and I'm sure everyone would like to hear about uh, what they can look forward to seeing from you next. What's coming up on your roster? 
Well, I'd just like to say thanks for having me. This has been a great time. I really appreciate you guys letting me to go on and on about The Fury because I haven't had a chance to talk about this movie very much, as you can see. <laughs> I think I want to make uh, The Fury remake. So that's what well, that would be next. great. No. <laughs> but it is a very inspiring thing for some of the stuff I've got coming up. So, you know, I got an independent film that I should be shooting later this year which has to do with, uh, it is sort of almost in the conspiracy thriller vein, but it's set against the backdrop of signal intrusions. Mm. Maybe it has a little something to do with the Max Hadrum incident. Yeah. And uh, some other stuff that is actually like combining sort of the science fiction elements with with uh, conspiracy thriller paranoia stuff. The Fury actually is pretty relevant to the stuff that I'm working on because I have I have several projects that have a 70s paranoia conspiracy thriller vibe to them, but they also have some genre, some horror and sci-fi genre in them as well. Right. But anyway, you guys are just so fun to talk to about movies. You just, you know so much stuff about movies and have such uh, thoughtful things that you say about them. It's really, really nice to hear. Wow. Thank, thank you. you. Well, it's been incredible having you on. Um, you have cracked me up more than I've ever laughed <laughs> on the podcast, I think. <laughs> and your insight is just boundless, so it's amazing. And it's worth noting, listeners, that Jacob's sci-fi film Synchronicity, over in Australia anyway, is currently streaming on Netflix. Mm, here too. And it's a very intriguing watch. It is, yes. You should check it out. If you're fond of time travel mind fucks, this is definitely your movie. That should be on the poster. <laughs> I should put that on the poster. <laughs> You're a fan of mind fucks. Time travel mind fucks, which is code for didn't understand the fucking movie. <laughs> uh, and also, uh, where can our listeners follow you, Jacob, on uh, social media? Uh, I'm not super engaged with social media. I mean, I have a Twitter. I think it's just my name, Jacob Gentry, J-A-C-O-B-G-E-N-T-R-Y. Uh, I'm not, I'm not super active on there, but I got some short stuff on Vimeo. You can go look at that. Isn't that kind of a social media platform? Yeah, of course. Just Vimeo backslash Jacob Gentry. There should be some stuff on there. There should be some fun, some fun things to look at. Awesome. Synchronicity is on Netflix. If you're in America or if you're in UK (laughs) and David Mind's movie, uh, The Signal, I think just was on Prime recently. I don't know. Cool. And I will be watching you from above, <laughs> like the corrupt corporate system that is trailing all of us. <laughs> in the meantime, if anyone would like to get in touch with us and tell us what they thought of The Fury or to give us some warnings about Extro, we are on all platforms as Movie Oubliette. If you want to email us, we are movie.oubliette at gmail.com. And please give us a rating and review on iTunes or whatever other podcast platform you are using. We are now on Stitcher, so if you're using that... We are, yeah. Give us a, a five-star rating, please. Please do on Stitcher. We have nothing. It's a, it's a tumbleweed barren desert in there at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> so thanks for joining us, and of course, thanks to our guest, Jacob Gentry, for joining us. Thanks, Jacob. Thanks. All right, guys. And bye for now. See you later. Goodbye. <laughs> I killed it with a machine gun.